Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really happy to be joined by Eric T. Weber. Dr. Eric T. Weber is a philosopher. He's a podcaster. He's a, a radio personality. He's very involved in an organization called uh, Sophia, which we're going to be talking about. And he just put together a really interesting one-sheeter on some ethical questions and issues around education and educational philosophy that are tied very closely to the COVID-19 pandemic. He's also just a really interesting follow, got a lot of great stuff going on. With no further ado, Eric, uh, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, for sure. And the podcast, uh, for those of you who are interested, is Philosophy Bakes Bread. I would view it as a, a very kindred uh, type of show. If you like trending in education, I think you would like a lot of what Eric and, and your co-host. Your co Anthony Cacio, yeah. Yeah, so it's a really interesting dynamic. The two of you clearly enjoy having a conversation with one another. And then you get into uh, some really interesting conversations about philosophy, which the, the angle that we really wanted to pursue here mainly was educational philosophy, because this mm -hmm. is a, a show about trends in education. Sure. And, and we haven't really gone particularly deep on educational philosophy and how it relates, although a lot of people like to talk about John Dewey, and I know that's some, someone who's close to your heart. But, but just to begin, I thought we would start, I like to understand in my guests' own words, their own hero's tale. How have you gotten to where you are at this point in your career? And why would folks who listen to a trend spotting show about learning and education and the future of everything, what would be interesting to them about you? Sure. So I, I heard you call it an origin story. And I, I think there's a pretty clear path for me to where I've come to be. And, and that has to do with the fact that like so many people, I had this sort of general idea that I wanted to be happy. And when I went to college, I didn't just want to take something that's what seems obvious to everyone. I wanted to really think about what kind of path and trajectory would make me happy, would be what I'd want to be doing with my life. Yeah. And it seemed to me that the people who had the richest thoughts about what it means to be happy were philosophers. Yep. It's not that philosophers are all necessarily the happiest people, right. but the happiest person I ever saw was this philosophy professor where I, where I got my degree named John Locks <clears throat> at, at uh, Vanderbilt University. He was really happy and he taught about Aristotle and Aristotle had some of the most amazing thoughts about what it means to be happy. Yeah, and just and, to clarify, John is spelt like the thing that goes with bagels or like multiple English uh, enlightenment uh, <laughs> professors. What's the spelling on that? L-A-C-H-S. Ah, I would not have gone there. Yes, uh, L-A-C-H-S. John La Latches is what it looks like. Locks, got it, yep. Yeah, and he's this absolutely wonderful guy and, and everyone would say about him that he's the sort of motivation or inspiration for uh, Dead Poet Society, that terrific movie about mm -hmm. an amazing teacher. That was very likely uh, hyperbole, but at the same time, he was that kind of teacher who was amazing, so inspiring. And, and I wanted to be like him. I wanted yeah. to contribute to helping other people find their paths in life and think deeply about what it means to be happy and how to live better in the broad sense of the terms. There's yeah. all kinds of things to which philosophy can make contributions, mm -hmm. you know, uh, getting us to think more clearly, more precisely, getting us to think about ethics, getting us to yeah. think about justice, about mm -hmm. consistency and logic and all those kinds of things. And, yeah. and I really loved that kind of thing. I loved debating and thinking with people. Mm -hmm. And and my brother was actually the one who thought he wanted to go into the academy. And when he had told me that, he went a different direction. But when he had told me that, I thought, wow, what an idea. I could follow the path of this kind of guy who's so yeah. happy, mm -hmm. studies philosophy, the stuff I really love thinking about and talking about. And so that was what, what hooked me into this trajectory. Yeah. And, 
Now, as far as how and why this might pertain to people interested in trends in education, one thing I can tell you is that it seems to me in looking back at the last 20, 30 years is that there's been a tragic, in my view, decline of attention, inattention to philosophy in colleges of education Mm. Uh, and and universities in general, perhaps. But most people would say that university education should contribute to, to ethics, for instance, to understanding about ethics. Most people would say that critical thinking is important for college education. And so those are things where philosophy departments often make a significant contribution. Mm -hmm. But in thinking about education and thinking about colleges of education, a lot of them have become essentially teacher prep programs, which is wonderful. You should have teacher prep. But at the same time, are we getting to the depths of kind of thinking about what we're doing as teachers, as professors, as students in education? Are we thinking about the nature of these things? And it's so often the case, it seems to me, that we can lose sight of what we should be doing if we don't have a sense of our purpose, of of the nature of the thing that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And when you lose sense of that, well, you're checking a box to check a box, not because this represents something important. And and that's where things can get backwards and and problematic. So I I think maintaining a a strong sense of what we're we're trying to do, what is the nature of what we're doing, and how we ought to do it democratically, right? ethically and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, those to me are incredibly important things. And I've been interested in policy for a long time. And I've focused yeah. especially on education policy, but not only before my move to the University of Kentucky in the, in the College of Education, but go Wildcats. Nat- natural fit for me. That's go, right. Go, go Wildcats. Wildcats. Okay. Just making sure I got that right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, it was a pretty natural move for me because I was so interested in Dewey, as you point out. Right. And Dewey has lots of relevance all over the place, but he was especially famous for what he contributed in education. Yeah. But yeah. So this was a very natural and, and happy, you know, move for me and transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so I think there's a lot that people in education in all kinds of areas need yeah. to be thinking about in terms of our purposes, the nature of education, how we yeah. have to engage in it. And also uh, maybe some ways to stem the trend then too, if you're saying in some ways, I view this show as a, a curator of trends, like there right. are places where if you want to spread the word about a trend that needs to grow or put your thumb on the proverbial trend scale. Right. Yeah, exactly. The more, I would say even somewhat objectively, although I I would certainly advocate for it, it does feel like a lot of what's happening now in discussions about the future of work and automation and what it means to be human and also what it means to be, how to think about ethical design. Mm -hmm. uh, Those concepts feel like almost a counter trend to the the diminution of philosophy that you were talking about before. Like, it does feel like there is a bit of a renaissance, uh, yeah, if you yeah. will, happening. Any thoughts on that? I'm, I'm certainly hopeful about it. The more you have people talking about it, the more things tend to come back, if you, yeah. if you will. But at the same time, there has been a strong pressure in institutions of higher education towards the work that is best suited for support from grant funding, from external funding. A lot of institutions- Harder research, yes. Yeah, exactly, the kind of research. So for me to do research, I need books, access to library resources, time, students to work with and everything. And it's wonderful when I can get grant funds. And there's certain kinds of projects where there's this sort of application and this test of some sort of instrument or something like that. And it's wonderful, it's very interesting research. But people tend to think about research as the dollars brought in for a grant. Yeah rather than the result of what you did in terms of publishing something right. on the basis of having had that funding. 
Mm-hmm. But, but if another scholar over here can publish meaningful stuff that really advances knowledge in an area, but didn't get the grant, is it less significant? And right. I should hope the answer is not, of course. Right. And some terrific research, including in my department, is by a, a, an amazing scholar, John Thielen, my, my colleague, who's a historian. And historians don't typically get the kind of research grants that other areas can yeah. get or have available to them. Right. And he, he's a huge figure in American you know, history of higher education. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems to me we, we, we can sometimes um, mistake the means for the ends. The means of getting grant funding for some people is great, but it's for an end. It's to do research and right. to write and publish, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we mistake the means that the grant funding for the ends. So. Yeah, yeah. And then even just to build on that, the ends, another interesting end or output that you've been able to produce while you've been a professional academic, you've also been able to extend the conversation beyond the, the traditional delivery within academia to right. on the, the, the left end of your radio dial. So there is, you know, like that, can you talk a little more, I don't know if our listeners understand what it was like in terms of your origin story too, as a communicator, as a broadcaster, as a podcaster, uh, could you just bring that aspect of your background uh, to bear? Sure, absolutely. So, and, and you're making a very good point. And, and I would actually say that the move of, of having scholars attend to the usefulness and relevance and interaction with the public mm-hmm has, to my mind, been a, a, a bigger kind of growth in the last 20 years yeah. than of colleges of ed back to, back to philosophy. Although I'm, I'm hoping that, that I can participate in being part of the nudge yeah. uh, in that direction moving forward. Yeah. So basically, the, the notion of wanting philosophy to matter, wanting to, to my education to help make me happy, those kinds of things are all tied together in the idea that when we do a scholarship in the academy, it should have some sort of bearing on life. It's one thing if you've got complex matters that are about chemistry and your average person can't understand it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, when there's a problem, you tell people to boil their water. Like we right. have ways in which we engage with the community. Even if you don't know all the chemistry, yeah. you know that you got to boil your water or you might get sick. Mm-hmm. So that even the jargon-filled kind of technical scholarship can have applications in very simple ways. Yes, sometimes. I mean, science, science communication is a huge trend. And in some ways, I've always viewed what you're doing as almost an extension of the same trend. It's just yeah. more the, the philosophy side of the equation. That's right. That's right. And so uh, someone like John Dewey would use science with a big S. If the sciences yes. are sort of all the pursuits of knowledge, that would yes. include philosophy in a way. Yeah. And But you're right. So the way we think about sciences, the sciences have had to work on that a lot. And you can see that right now, unfortunately, with how, yes. how poor is some of the understanding about COVID, how poor is understanding about things like vaccines. Yeah. These, these are big hurdles. Even when we get a vaccine for COVID-19, are people going to take the vaccine? This is, right. this is a terrifically important matter. Right. And if we want to control this virus, we're going to need people to understand mm-hmm. why they really need to take a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, John Dewey was my hero in so yeah. many ways. And I, and I encountered his work in college, and he was Mr. Public Philosophy. And as I mentioned before, uh, we started recording. I've got a, a collection of Dewey's essays coming out this nice. December. Yeah. with Columbia University Press um, mm-hmm. called America's Public Philosopher. Mm. So uh, folks, if you're really interested, you may be able to pick that up right before Christmas, but nice, certainly for the new year. And so Dewey being, being an important figure for me, he's someone who really made a difference thinking philosophically about things, for instance, like education and about how it you know, might make more sense to do it if, we're, if we share in democratic values, a small d democratic values, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the ways in which he was engaged with the public were inspiring to me. He wrote for the newspaper all the time. He yeah. gave all kinds of speeches and addresses and so forth. And, he and, probably would have had a podcast, right? Like if oh, there were podcasts so. back then? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It was the equivalent, basically all these different kind of journals and periodicals that people mm -hmm. would create and he'd participate in. Them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much he served as an editor for things, but he'd certainly be a contributor to lots of podcasts. He'd be a guest. Yeah, yeah. He'd certainly be a, a frequent guest. And, yeah. And he did yeah. a lot of that kind of thing for the Society for Ethical Culture in New York City. Yes, instance, yes. Um, mm -hmm. Important organization there. And we you know at all kinds of journals and periodicals that were created during the Great Depression, they were looking for material and he wrote really powerful things about unemployment and the need to support people, that it's a chronic problem, not an occasional problem, right? Mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. something to be addressed with charity, but as something that regularly happens, we need policy for it. And before, at a certain point, we didn't have that. And now yeah. we do because of people like him contributing yeah. to, to public discourse about things that were needed. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so he made a really big difference. And I wanted to be a public philosopher. I wanted to contribute to the extent that I can usefully. And so I would write for the newspaper bunch in Mississippi, uh, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. I was at the time. This was yep. the University of Mississippi. Okay. I was there from 2007 to 2016. Where is that and in Mississippi? Uh, exactly. It's in Oxford. Oxford. It's it's uh, about an hour and fifteen minutes from Memphis, if that yeah, Tennessee, okay. so north. Sure. So it's so it's northern part of the state. Got right? It. Mm -hmm. right in the middle. And so I wrote frequently for the newspaper and I was thinking about next things and so forth. And a mentor of mine, actually John Locks from Vanderbilt, I asked him about Dewey and about public philosophy and what you know, what should I be aiming for? I'd made a what was to me an exciting list of goals and it, a few years later, I was, I was pretty surprised to find that I'd achieved those. So I'm like, okay, nice. so what, what should my next goal be? Yeah. And he said, a lot of people read newspapers, but far more watch TV. Mm -hmm. He said, go, go to television. <laughs> I didn't really know what that meant or how to do that. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I did a couple of interviews about my book on Mississippi came out. It was called Uniting Mississippi. And, mm. and I did a bunch of interviews around Mississippi about it. And that was a little bit of TV. But the yeah. point was more to talk to people about the issues that matter in the state, right? It's not just about publicity yeah. so much as making sure that the ideas we think about yeah. and think through and propose actually get a hearing. Yeah. Right? You, you want to express these things to yeah, people. Yeah, discourse. If you put it in a library on a shelf, nobody's paying any attention right. to it. So right. I wanted to make sure that the ideas that I was studying were considered. And yeah. so I got out there and in thinking through this idea of TV, basically what I, I stumbled upon the fact that I'd started a little bit of a podcast and I gave an interview on a radio show here in Lexington once we had moved uh, in 2016. And giving that interview uh, on, on the radio here in, in Lexington, the guy at, on, at the station said, you should have a show. And I, I thought to myself, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and then, of course, it dawned on me I could propose a show that would be an extension of the podcast, but I would need a co-host. I, you know, I can't mm -hmm. do this alone. Yeah. And, and that's how that began is, yeah. is that is this idea that we might move towards TV, but TV isn't so much my goal, but the yeah. point is that philosophy is conversational. Mm -hmm. It's engaging. It's, yeah. it's fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? It can be on TV, but sort of production challenges are complicated. Yeah. I'll, I, I've been on the record uh, saying I have a face for podcasting. <laughs> So, uh, so you know, you, know the, you turn on the Zoom, everybody looks fine in Zoom nowadays. It's, <laughs> it's just, but it's a uh, the real substance of the conversation is your is the words and how you intone them. Exactly. And then also, I was thinking about discourse, and then you mentioned the conversation, the idea that it is an exchange. Even when you write a book as a public philosopher, it's so that you can begin a conversation. It's not so that everyone can say how right you are. I much agree with that. What would Dewey think of the current state of affairs? in America today? And how do you think he might respond? And how would he recommend to be a public philosopher in the very fraught, rancorous, anxiety-ridden age that we're living in? Great. So the useful but sad news is that the world is a lot more today like it was in Dewey's day than we would like. Mm -hmm. At the time, 
Dewey was critical of Nazis and communists and certain folks. And he wasn't being, he wasn't exaggerating when he was talking about that. These were actual literal Nazis who called yeah. themselves that and communists yeah. and so forth. And, yeah, yeah. But not only them, but also all kinds, of, all kinds of prejudice in the United States, all kinds of anti-science in the United States, all kinds yeah. of undemocratic forces, yeah. all kinds of worshiping of Wall Street and inattention to the sufferings of people. Yeah. We have all kinds of programs and safeguards that we didn't have in his day. But there's a lot of people threatening to take those away, to diminish yeah. them and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. And so the world is a lot more like it was in his day, partly because during the Great Depression, the, the unemployment rate got up to 25% in 1932. Mm -hmm. And we're not there, but our unemployment rate is, is as high as it's been since yeah. the Great Depression. Yeah. You know, we've got more complicated and strange kinds of threats from abroad when it comes to things like tampering with elections and, yeah. and social media, more complications to those media I think the other thing is that in, in today, the idea of being able to be heard, of getting an audience, is vastly more challenging mm -hmm. than it was in his day. Even though our tools are so much more powerful for being heard, everybody's got those tools. Yeah, yeah. And, and so to cut through and to actually make an impact, I think, is much harder today than it was in his day. Yeah. And, and there's a little bit of needing to learn how to build a platform and to make sure you're heard. That's necessary today. That was, but he just had that platform in his right. day. He, he was this big guy at Chicago. He was this big guy at Columbia University. And, and he wrote a lot of influential pieces. And, and so, you know, him in the 30s during the Great Depression, he had a regular column in the New Republic, for instance, which was a, remains a pretty big deal magazine. Mm -hmm. But basically, there's an unbelievable proliferation of, of platforms today. And at the same time, I actually think that's very good. I think he would think that that aspect of things is a good thing. Mm -hmm. More people can express their ideas and, and try to be heard. And if you believe in the marketplace of ideas kind of thing, then the most powerful art articles get circulated and we all yeah. tend to like them on social media. I mean, you can have a positive spin on these things. Yeah, yeah. Also, you, you can have the flip side, which is that real nastiness can be spread like crazy. Yeah. Um, and we, we can dramatically empower the community building of hate, hate groups. And that's terrifying and sad. Yeah. Um, we even have a, a, a president and, and candidate who wouldn't reject the support of white supremacists right, right. in the presidential debate. I, I think we've got uh, a lot of things going on that are anti-science. We've got a lot of ways in which education is threatened. Yeah. Uh, for instance, the Secretary of Education at, at the federal level has threatened some safeguards that are in place for students with disabilities. We've got a lot of things we should be worried about. We've got, of course, significant economic insecurity. Yeah. And the federal government passed support relief that issued people one check for what, 1200 maybe $1,600, depending. And that was months ago. And yeah, what, yeah. are people supposed to survive on that? Mm -hmm. And so I think we've got incredible economic insecurity. We've got threats to quality education in America, as well as to the rights of students, especially with disabilities, but not only. Yeah. We've got all kinds of students sent home on a dime back in the spring who didn't have the resources, space, a desk at home, who yeah, knows, to yeah. be able to study on a computer from home, let alone mm -hmm. did they have internet connections. Right. You know? so, so these are some of the kinds of considerations that are alive and worrisome today. At the same time, even in the Great Depression, Dewey was a guy who called for hope. Yeah. The idea is not that we're in good circumstances, but that when things are really at the bottom, Hopefully, you can see a lot of, of things that are on, on the way up as far right. as what, how things could be better in so many mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. And he was a big advocate for the power of teachers and education to mm -hmm. make a difference in that regard. At the same time, I think today he would think that we have 
unbelievably hampered the freedom and potential of teachers to make a difference yeah. because we make them follow scripts. Yeah. We strongly regulate what it is they're going to be teaching and how, and then we uh, evaluate them on the basis of the ways in which their students perform on a test that treats answers as if they're all predetermined, which isn't life. Yeah. That's not the way life works. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a system right now that is failing to cultivate independent judgment and critical thinking in students, but rather train them mm-hmm. in choice selection on standardized tests. Yeah. So I think he'd be really worried about and, and sad about that, but hopeful about the potential to make, make change happen. Yeah, that was pretty good, man. I felt the spirit of, spirit of John Dewey was in the room. <laughs> I was raising my hands uh, as you testify. <laughs> but uh, no, this is, and this is the type of stuff I, I will say folks should listen to uh, Philosophy Bakes Bread. I did, I particularly liked the one uh, about outside learning that was while ah. you were on an expedition. Yeah. With Mount. So I right. thought that was, you do interesting stuff. I would recommend folks listen to the show. But I also wanted to talk a bit about Sophia. Can you just uh, round it out a little bit for our listeners? What is SOFIA? Why should they care about it? And, and so forth. Sure. So SOFIA is the acronym, loosely speaking, for the Society of Philosophers in America. The idea is not simply that we're limited to America. We actually have a chapter in India, but with that we originated in America. And it's an organization that launched at a time when philosophers were really just talking to each other at conferences, and they were uh, highly in attack mode, right? You'd hear a paper and you'd find a way to belittle the speaker. Yeah. And that was a really common practice. It was eight mile. It was, uh, it was like Eminem. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, and, and so people were, were um, not talking about things relevant to the public. They weren't engaging the public at all. Mm-hmm. And there were very few opportunities for people beyond the academy to engage in philosophical conversation. Yep. And so philosophers at the time got together. They were frustrated by the state of the academy and the state of, of philosophy at the time. A lot has changed, I will say, but some things haven't changed much. There's far more women in philosophy today, which is a good thing, but there's only a small change in how many philosophers in America are African-American, mm-hmm. right? It's under 2%, and that needs wow. to change. Yeah. Uh, but, but the pr- proportion of women has uh, risen to somewhere around 40% okay. uh, f- from a far lower number. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been a lot of growth, at least in that. And there's a lot more appreciation and, and intention to engage in public philosophy than there used to be. Yeah. Um, but that's still burgeoning. That's still beginning. So Sophia originated at that time, basically in the 80s. It was founded in 1983 as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And in time, what it's come to be, we did some strategic planning in 2015, and we have come to redefine our mission as the development of communities of philosophical conversation. Mm-hmm. So as, at the end of the day, Sophia realizes that there's a lot of places where scholars can go give a paper. What we need is places to have conversation. Mm-hmm. And it ought to be ideally engaging with our peers in, in the world and yeah, people yeah. from other fields. Philosophers shouldn't be on an island. We should be talking with everybody. Yeah, yeah. And among the core principles are essentially that philosophy is engaged with others, right? That kind of philosophy is for everyone and anyone could engage in philosophy. You got to yeah. make it accessible, though, to do that. Yeah. We also want to make sure we're talking about issues that are relevant and of, and of importance to the public. Yeah. So, so those are two key guiding principles. And then what we came to realize eventually was when we were holding all these individual little meetings in places that took a lot of effort, what would, what would have made more sense would be to just have local communities that, that can lead these themselves. Yeah. And in other words, we became a chapter organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so local chapters get together on whatever regular basis they want. And Sophia as an organization tries to provide resources to make the building of philosophical community easier. And again, this is the building of adult informal lifelong learning, Mm -hmm. essentially. 
and people eat this up. They love it. And, yeah. and there's a lot of philosophy groups out there in the country. And we've hooked up with some of them and say, hey, we're an organization. We have this identity. We have this method. We have these tools. Yeah. We have tiny little grants that we can offer, seed yeah. grants. Yeah. And, and people have been eating it up. That awesome. When they have a local philosophy group, they say, yeah, we want to become a chapter. And they get sure. a couple of bucks from us. They get right. They get some resources. They get an identity. And, you and, buy, and like, then, you could buy donuts back in the day if it was a live event. You, you could, you could get exactly. a little, little co- have, provide some coffee for the philosophy chat. Yeah. In the before time, before COVID-19. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, we would, people would get together. They'd meet, if it's a, an adult group, they might bring beer or whatever. Wow. Or, or, or meet at a bar. Philosophy or, or, and beer. Forget about it. Could there be pizza? <laughs> I don't even, I, I can't even, can't even contain bread. myself. Oh, my goodness. There's, what, our largest chapter, shout out to them, is what, what was originally called and remains the Seattle Analytic Philosophy Club. Nice. Um, they're, they're not uniquely analytic philosophy, but that's where the where they originated. Sure. And they are a Sophia chapter, and they've got like 4,000 members nice. who follow their meetup group. And at any given event, they've got 50, 60 people, again, in the before time. Yeah. But in, in it's a fl- flash mob of John Dewey. Uh, it's, David it's a lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and since COVID-19 started, they actually were the people who launched the Virtual Philosophy Network. Nice. And, and so they've been doing all kinds of meetings online, and, I mean, and the rest of Sophia is starting to catch up to that. Yeah, yeah. But that way, all of a sudden, finally, people in this part of the world can actually meet with this local group in that part of the world. Yeah, so it's been per- fascinating. Yeah. Just the, the yeah. one silver lining around the, the pandemic is just the new modes of interaction that are truly exactly. global and really interesting ways to think about how you might design new models, new ways to meet and engage. We did want to hit quickly on there's a one cheater. Can you talk briefly about that? Sure. So Sophia's methodology for our meetings has come to what we think is a, as a best practice. And that is to develop what we call a one sheet. And the idea of having a one sheet is that literally you can have people who haven't read the same stuff because they don't have time necessarily yeah. to do homework. This isn't a class. Right. But if they show up in the same room with interest in this theme that, that has been chosen, and ideally that they've had the chance to offer thoughts about what should be chosen. Yeah. They show up and they can all be on the same page, literally. You yeah. read this paragraph together and then you got questions. Yeah. You don't have to start with those questions. You can come up with your own or, or reject something about what's on the one sheet, whatever. Yeah. But the point is you're literally all on the same page. And, yeah. and it is far more productive of a rich conversation than any of us could have imagined yeah. you know, early on. And so once I saw how well that works, I was blown away. And the, the next key was, okay, how do we get a whole bunch more one sheets? Because that's the next thing that our local communities are going to need, all kinds yeah. of one sheets to get together regularly. Mm-hmm. And the answer is that local groups make them. People can make yeah. their own, right? Yeah. If you think yeah. there should be a one sheet on this, we'll write one. And the network and group of Sophia can give you feedback that's and great. comments and, and yeah. make it better. I was actually invited, now that groups are on doing online meetings, I was invited by our chapter in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's called the Albuquerque Philosophy Collective. It's nice. the name of our Sophia chapter in Albuquerque. Hey. So they asked me, hey, would you like to come meet with our group and facilitate a meeting? And I thought, that sounds great. Yeah. I hadn't met with them yet. I thought it'd be fun. Yeah. And, and so I suggest, I propose this topic because, you know, I'm in a college of ed. I'm teaching philosophy of education right now. I've got a Dewey yeah. book coming out. And he said, how about you we want to do something on education? I said, sure. How about talking about education in crisis? Yeah. And I thought about that. There were two meanings to education in crisis, right? Because in a sense, there's this perpetual notion that education is constantly in crisis. People, you know, are always bringing up this or that thing as a problem that they think is a crisis in education. Yeah. And, and that is a kind of mode talking about education. But also, we're living through a pandemic. It's been crazy. There's been a terrifically great set of challenges that have come up because of, of COVID-19. 
And so I thought, why don't I make a one sheet that has the first side is education in a time of crisis. And then if, if people want more to talk about or a second meeting to talk about something else that's related, they can talk about enduring crises in education. That, yeah. That's how the one sheet is divided. And people can find that on, on Sophia's website, which is philosophersinamerica.com. There you go. And so I created this one sheet called Education in Crisis. And it started with, to be most timely, it started with education in the time of crisis, hence of COVID-19. Yeah, so a lot there. And uh, we'll probably hold off on the discussion, but there's plenty, like it's more how to start a discussion. The, the questions right. are really interesting. I would recommend uh, folks take a look. But, uh, but we're running close on time here, Eric. And I did want to make sure before we left uh, that I uh, gave you an opportunity to share with us whatever is capturing your imagination in terms of broader trends that are out there in the world. And maybe this is where you could touch on how you think the pandemic relates. It could be some new media trend. It might be a must-see golden age of television viewing. It could be anything that's capturing your imagination, anything to conclude with that's really top of mind for you in terms of trends for folks to, to be on the lookout for. Sure. There's a broad one I'll bring up that's the, essentially the core subject of a book I'm finishing up. And then there's a, a fairly narrow one that I think can show you how one can have these big topics or really focused ones. Yeah. So in, in the big topic has to do with culture uh, because we've had all kinds of conflicts around the country for the last decade, two decades, about all kinds of symbols. And lots of people are bemoaning and and critical of what they call political correctness, Mm -hmm. including Ben Carson, who says it's a danger for our country. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we have had serial mass murderers. For instance, the the fellow Dylan Roof, Mm -hmm. who murdered nine people in the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina. He was, you know, all these photographs of him with guns and Confederate flags and things. And, And at the time, this was really tragic. Well, a whole bunch of people were killed. And folks were not yet living up to the kind of expectation that we consider forces like things like Confederate flags and what they might mean to people. I lived in a state that had the Confederate flag in its canton in the corner. And um, my students asked the university to take the flag down, which is an interesting move. And it was successful. Mm-hmm. They, they got the flag to, be, to come down on a two-thirds vote of the Associated Student Body. And then the subsequent vote when people asked to move the statue to the Confederate soldier was unanimous. Mm -hmm. And this was majority white students, by the way, at at a historically white university in Mississippi. And and so anyway, so it seems to me that there's a fascinating set of questions around what are our obligations regarding culture for the sake of justice. Mm -hmm. And and that's the book that I'm finishing up. It's called The Culture of Justice. And it's looking at the ways in which culture can make a difference. And some people think it's these kinds of things are merely symbolic. But in Louisiana, in the Supreme Court, there was an argument, you know, made by the ACLU that a death row case, the defendant in such a case could not expect a fair trial in a courthouse over which the Confederate battle flag was flying. Mm. And the, the Louisiana Supreme Court said it concluded that argument was reasonable wow. to, to, to assume that. And that, uh-huh. that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and there's Confederate statues. It's not just about Confederacies, though. Like yeah. the team, the Redskins, right, is imagine the Mississippi Blackskins. That, that, that right. sounds horrible. How could we? And yet people are much more used to hearing the name Redskins. And, and there's some changes that are in our future. Things, the way things are named, are things welcoming, the sort of culture that we have, what kinds of symbols were created long ago in our beautiful old buildings. Sometimes those can be deeply troubling. Yeah. Right. And and so what's called for? What do we need to do? Those are the kind of questions that I'm looking at. Mm. And and I, I love freedom. I love speech. Right. I love freedom of speech. But that doesn't mean that we oughtn't make certain kinds of changes. 
And, and so this is one of the t kinds of tensions that's going on right now in the big picture all over the place, including at my university where there was a mural that was controversial. Mm. Some people contextualize with a plaque. Some people take things down or move them. Yeah. Some people think we should destroy them. Some people think we should put things in museums. And, and there's a lot of different possible solutions. But the point is more and more schools and colleges and universities are having to think about their culture mm -hmm. and what effects that has. We know that has an effect on student retention. Yeah. right? The kind of social engagement and cultural engagement. And these are some of the kinds of questions that I've been studying and, yeah. and uh, I'll be finishing Sounds this book I hope, yeah. in the next couple of months. Man, you're a productive gentleman. You have a, this, this, <laughs> an additional book uh, that's coming out. Yeah, but that, that's well, this, this one I haven't finished writing yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I've got at least 18 months before, okay. before okay, it good. comes Okay. Up. But that's on the horizon for sure. That's right. And the, the other topic that's been really exciting to me has had to do with what is possible for an economy that might spread the wealth without coercion. And what do I mean by that? Employee-owned companies. Mm -hmm. There is a business model that has been very successful in some companies. In fact, it so happens that I worked in one a long time ago at Publix Grocery Store. Mm. Uh, Publix Grocery Stores is an employee-owned company. It's very successful. And when I stopped working there many years ago, I got a check in the mail for my ownership of the company, mm. for my proportion. Yeah, yeah. And it, I, I was very pleasantly surprised. And when I thought back on that, I had never worked anywhere where the employees were so happy to work there, mm. where they seemed to really take ownership. And, 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 yeah, and in, yeah. in a way that, you know, this isn't tongue in cheek. This is, wow. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Maybe that these people really felt ownership in their mm -hmm. company. And, mm -hmm. and it seems to me that there is a potential for there to be more and more employee-owned companies. The question is, why isn't it that there's far more of them? Right. And it may just be that this is a less common model that needs time to develop. But I also think that it's the case that you need a certain education to be ready for that kind of stuff. You need an, an entrepreneurial you know, spirit. You yeah. need to be a critical thinker. You need certain attributes. You need to be a public speaker. You need to be prepared for shared endeavor. Mm -hmm. And what does an, an excess obsession with standardized testing do? It isolates us. Mm -hmm. I think we need education to start working on shared endeavors and, and teamwork much mm -hmm. more. And, and some business schools do that a little bit, but they're still largely preparing people for the kind of market that there is yeah. rather than preparing for the kind of market that could be. Yeah. And, and I think both K-12 education and business schools um, ought to make considerably more effort to enable and prepare people to be ready for employee-owned industry. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. it does. It also does build a culture. Getting back to your first point, yep, that is more egalitarian. Everyone has a stake. There is. There more. It's they have a voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting stuff. We could go on at <laughs> length, and and this has really been a fascinating conversation, Eric. And any concluding thoughts as as we wrap up here? I, I really appreciate you doing this. I think it's incredibly important for colleges of education to return to serious consideration in their curriculum, in their curricula, to the philosophy of education, to ethics in education. I've seen more things that really surprised me in educational scholarship in the last two years that really call for ethical thinking. And it's tragic to me the extent to which that has receded from focus. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak to people in education broadly yeah, yeah. through your program mm -hmm. to say, hey, y'all, let, let, let's not forget these incredibly important things that are at the core of what we should be doing in education. Awesome. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Eric T. Weber, the host of Philosophy Bakes Bread. Actually, we didn't get into that, but it's in response to, is that Marx who said philosophy bakes no bread? 
It actually dates back to Aristotle, believe Aristotle. it or not. He, he, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then there was a poem that said something like, philosophy may bake no bread, but it can procure for us God immortality in the soul, which then is more profitable, economy or philosophy? Wow. And it was, so the phrase was actually to say, hey, you who think philosophy doesn't bake bread, but does yeah. these much more important things. Yeah. Of course, what, what people remember is the philosophy doesn't bake bread part. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I'm ready for the, the, the baked goods endorsements to start uh, pouring into uh, philosophy bakes bread brought to you by... <laughs> uh, by your local philosopher. So thanks again, uh, Eric. And uh, for folks, check out Eric. He's on Twitter. He's out there in the world. Philosophy Bakes Bread. Sophia, he's got a book on John Dewey coming up. And for those of you who stuck with us this long, thanks as always for listening. And we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. Yeah.